welcome to episode number six of the homoglobin.com podcast, the genetic cast. Uh, this is episode six. I'm, I'm here with my guest, Elizabeth. Hi. Nice. I'm Elizabeth. She was the uh, producer on the last podcast, but she is now here as my guest. And she's also coincidentally my girlfriend. So, uh, and she also lives in the same house that I do. So, um, we are not doing this in murder room studios, unfortunately. Because it's very cold and the washing machine is running, or the dryer is running, I guess. Uh, so, not really good sound quality. So, anyway, um, we're just gonna get into it. And yeah, this one's about genetics, the genetic ass. Uh, so, yeah, here we go. I don't know. I'm not really a scientist or a sciencey guy, but I, you know, Elizabeth is a sciencey guy, so. Very sciencey guy. Yeah, so. Here we go. I'm going to start reading my notes. Here we go. Like with the previous episode, I am far from an expert on this one compared to my guest. So my notes are going to be pretty bare bones, um, but I'm going to try and flesh it out a little more than last time. Um, and Elizabeth also wrote probably as many, if not more notes than I did. So I really don't really have time to do a, a, a lot more than a basic rundown. Um, so we're going to talk about the basic history of genetics. Um, well, you know, not really get too deep into it. Um, I don't know, man. My notes get pretty deep into it. Well, yeah, I guess we'll get deeper into the mechanics of it, but the history side of it, uh, not as... Made a timeline. Wow. All right, well, we'll see how this goes then, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know. We didn't actually compare notes before this, so... Probably should have. Yeah, it's whatever. Um, so in this episode, episode six, uh, we're talking about the history of genetics as a discipline. And I'm not really going to, like, reflect on the, like, more sinister side of genetics because I don't really want to, and that's, like, a whole different thing. That's not really what we're talking about, so we'll get there, maybe. Uh, who knows how long this podcast will go for, so I don't know. Um, but you may know a little bit about genetics and the, the study of genetics if you graduated from high school in the last, like, 50 years or so. Um, so a lot of this might be kind of a refresher or maybe just a reminder, I don't, you know spark some you know deep-seated thing from biology class but we'll see hopefully uh, we don't trigger anyone yeah hopefully Any not horrible memories yeah i mean i'm already kind of getting flashbacks but it's, <laughs> it is what it is um so yeah we're gonna get into some stuff that i don't really know a lot about and uh we're gonna start with elizabeth explaining uh some stuff that i don't really know a lot about so here we go yeah, I thought it'd be good to start with an intro as to what DNA is, because if we're going to be talking about it, there's some necessary vocabulary and just some concepts. So DNA is part of what's called the central dogma of biology. And this is the phrase DNA is transcribed to RNA, which is translated to protein. So think of this as having a conversation with someone and then writing it down and then translating that conversation into French. So DNA goes to something similar, but then is transformed into something entirely different. Yeah. Okay. And I don't really have a lot of notes on RNA also, I'm going to note, so. Yeah, I kind of nixed RNA from this. I apologize. Uh, it's going to come up a little tiny bit, uh, but not really a whole lot, so we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> so to explain what a protein is, proteins, DNA, sugars, and fats are all what's called biomolecules. So there are four different classes, like I said. Um, proteins are responsible for almost everything in your body, um, from your pigments to structure, 
like to cell to cell communication, proteins are responsible for everything. And DNA controls proteins, it codes for it. So this is how DNA is able to change your physical appearance, your bodily operations, etc. Um, so as far as DNA goes, it is a strand of four letter code, like I've said, and those four letters are A, T, G, and C, where A always goes with T and G always goes with C, because DNA is two strands, so A is always matched with T on the other strand. Mm -hmm. um, think of A and T as holding both hands, so a pretty strong bond, hard to break apart. Well, G and C are holding two hands and also a foot, and <laughs> they can't be separated as easily. Right. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, DNA is so stable, it's held together by special chemical bonds called phosphodiester bonds, but you never have to hear that word again. Oh, yeah, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, DNA is so stable that it can last six months in a temp test tube at room temperature. To compare, a protein can last about two days at room temperature. Um, it has an estimated half-life of 521 years, so that's why we're still able to find trace DNA in fossils, etc. Which is crazy, yeah. Especially when they're frozen things like mammoths. Right. And that's how we get like all the DNA from, you know, just random all kinds of bones everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can trace what the, you know, first human looked like or whatever, all that stuff. So pretty crazy. So DNA is even more stable in that it forms a double helix. Like I said, two strands holding hands, some of them holding hands and feet. Um, and when these double helixes are compacted, these are what are your chromosomes. So it's just a bunch of DNA stored. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually, there's about three meters of DNA per cell. So crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the human genome itself is approximately three billion base pairs, but only 20 to 25,000 um, genes are within there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of junk in there, but it's right. to prevent, like if you have some sort of DNA mismatch mm -hmm. or a mutation, if there's more junk in there, like random sequences that don't do anything, it's more likely to end up in those random sequences and mm -hmm. not be a devastating mutation. Right, like something that is similar enough that it'll function more or less the same, or like close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Um, so like I said, there's about uh, three billion base pairs of DNA, but this is kind of an interesting thing because like, this is something called the C-value paradox, which is genome diversity. So you think, oh, humans are so complicated, we have like complicated thoughts, we must have a super huge genome. Mm -hmm. When in reality, we have three billion, flowering plants can have a hundred billion. <laughs> that's funny. Um, and I'm not saying that that's all, like that they have necessarily more genes, but they might have more junk in their genome, mm -hmm. it is possible. But it's just interesting to think about how much more plants have evolved in the time that they've been around. Right. I mean, they're so specific, too. But, mm -hmm. I mean. Plants are really complex, too. Mm -hmm. so. Um, so like I said, DNA gets transcribed into a complementary sequence of RNA. This replaces the T base that I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. with U. So now A goes with U. The reason for this is just to have something for the cell to distinguish between RNA and DNA with. One's got T, one's got you. Um, and then using a half protein, half DNA molecule as an adapter, that's how the RNA is read and then formed into a protein. Mm -hmm. um, see, so that's my quick talk on how DNA works. Okay. Controls pretty much everything. Weird. 
just like proteins. Right, and it's in pretty much everything. I mean, everything with this living. Well, it's living, yeah. Yeah, so crazy. All right, well, uh, and so do you have like an estimate on how much DNA in total is like in the human body? Because I know you said like three meters is in each cell, but I don't know how many cells are in. It's a quick Google search. Yeah. My producer, Elizabeth, is now Googling it, so here we go. Also, it depends on how big you are, but... That's fair, I guess. 37.2 trillion cells, so multiply that by three meters, and that's how many meters of DNA you have in your body. All right, well, there you go. There's the answer. So, (laughs) following that, it was always clear that people looked like their parents, which led to the first idea of genetics, which is heredity. Mm Mm-hmm. Significant research in the area of inheritance was done by the very famous Gregor Mendel, the guy with the pea plants. Oh, yeah. And Um, we're going to be talking about him soon, but I have some stuff before him that I want to get into. It's heredity stuff. Okay, let's talk about heredity. And then we can get into Mendel. Well, you can get into Mendel. Well, I don't really have... I have some Mendel, but you also have Mendel, it seems like, so I don't want to take that away from you. It seemed like you were on a roll. I wasn't. I just... uh... You were killing it. All right, but it's cool. Um... Let's get into it, yeah. So I start like way back, as you can see from my notes, 400 BCE. Uh, so I actually didn't mention that I was going to start with Mendel. My notes said it was, but I'm not. Uh, but his, dark, his work doesn't really start until 1865. So that's like a little too recent for me. And I know that the history of anarchy thing, I mean, I still got like some stuff before the 1800s in there. So pretty good. Um, yeah, I guess we're going to go back to Greece again this time, because that's where it all, it all kind of starts. People started thinking in Greece, I guess, uh, as far as Western people are concerned. Um, but pretty much Wikipedia had like a bunch of different Greek guys that had different theories about heredity, but it kind of boiled down to two different ideas, more or less. Um, so there's the so-called doctrine of epigenesis and the doctrine of preformation. Um, and preformation kind of came a little later, and it came into vogue later, um, but we'll get into it. Um, so epigenesis it was Aristotle's answer to the question of individual, individual development, um, and according to him, the final form of a species is the one that has developed internally over time from the point of conception. Um, Aristotle's example of this was the idea of the chicken which does not emerge fully formed within its egg, but instead is like an embryonic mass until it becomes like a, a fetus thing, and then it becomes a, you know, a chicken, and you know, you know how it goes. Uh, so the idea basically just that it develops steadily throughout, you know, it's whatever, um, and takes on traits from like that development. Um, as a counter to this idea, and maybe more of just a devil's advocate kind of thing. Uh, the idea of preformation came out and discussed amongst was discussed amongst some circles. Uh, preformation, as the name suggests, views the development of life as the unfolding of predetermined form or outcome. Um, that is to say that the form that we take ultimately was set at conception and just kind of, we were like, we just kind of got bigger. Uh, so, the most famous example, or one of the most famous examples of this idea being like talked about is from 1694, when a man named Nicholas von Hartz, Hartzocker, Seeker, I don't know, 
some something. Created an image of a tiny man within a sperm, which I'm going to link to on flimoglaucum.com, uh, known as homunuculus. Hum, not good at it, but I honestly can't tell if the whole thing is a joke or not, um, so it is what it is. But that being said, the image did end up inspiring a school of thought known as spermis, uh, which honestly, after reading a little bit into them, it kind of just sounds like an early like red pill or like men's rights activist kind of thing. Um, so here's a quote from Wikipedia. They contended that the only contributions of the female to the next generation were the womb in which the homonucleus grew. So shout out to that, I guess. No, wait, not shout out to that. I take it back. But to counter these guys, uh, an opposing group known as the Ovis were created, uh, well, not created, but just kind of, you know, they just happened. Um, and they believed that the future was uh, within the egg and that the sperm merely stimulated the growth of the egg. So um, humans just were, all the stuff's in the egg and then the sperm just comes and that's not, it's just not how it works, but it's a whole different thing. Then that's a different podcast too. So, um, and there was another person named Imri Festicus. Festicus. He's a Hungarian nobleman, uh, and I should talk about him more. And I'm only gonna really bring up his four different uh, genetic laws, as he called them. But he was the first person to really use the term genetics, quote unquote, when he was discussing heredity. So this is really like the beginning of genetics as an idea, I guess. Um, So here's his four laws. Uh, Healthy and robust animals are able to propagate and pass on their specific characteristics. Traits of grandparents that are different from those of the immediate progeny may reappear in later generations. Animals possessing desirable traits that have been inherited over many generations can sometimes have offspring with divergent traits. Such progeny are variants or freaks of nature and are unsuitable for further propagation if the aim is the heredity of specific traits. Laundry done. The precondition for successful application of inbreeding is scrupulous selection of stock animals. So yeah, uh, it's more about agriculture than uh, anything else with with this guy. But and and so it, it's very utilitarian. But it is what it is. Um, that's the first guy talking about genetics. Uh, but yeah, now we we we're at Mendel. I I kind of skipped a whole lot. But. It's it's uh, the history of science is always one of these things where it's like a bunch of a bunch of people coming to like a bunch of small conclusions that I really can't understand unless I'm like a scientific person and it's like I don't really understand the significance of a lot of the stuff that happens um, so it's I just skip a lot I skip a lot so it is what it is fair enough yeah sorry <laughs> I was pretty thorough thanks I tried. A lot of it is like not really, it's kind of like close to genetics. I just read the Wikipedia article on genetics and DNA and then actually a lot of different Wikipedia articles. I got like 50 of but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're at Mendel. So if you want to get into him a little bit, then I can fill cut, in the gaps. Yeah, some stuff that you don't, I mean, maybe I can talk about his life and then you can talk about his, his work and then that'll be better because I don't have much of I don't have that much either, but. Okay, screw it, we'll do it, okay. So, um, yeah, enough of that whole ancient history stuff, and then 
not as ancient history stuff. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get into the, the the weird, like, the weirdness of uh, early reproductive and uh, hereditary science, um, and just like what was going on. It was all kind of crazy, and no one really knew what was going on at all. Um, so, I mean, some people kind of had an idea, obviously, because you can just kind of tell, but you know, Mendel broke it down. Uh, so we've probably all heard about Mendel before in biology class or at some point, um, you know, I don't, just around. Uh, but I'm going to give you a little, a little non-scientist edition of his life, and then Elizabeth is probably going to have some more stuff to say. We'll see how much more she has, but whatever. Uh, so Mendel was born in Silesia, which was then a part of Austria, or the Austrian Empire, uh, in the year 1822. So he spent his life as an Augustinian friar at St. Thomas's Abbey, um, where he would eventually end up serving as abbot. And in addition to his religious position, he worked as a scientist, obviously. Uh, so growing up, he worked on a family farm, which you can still visit today. There's a museum, uh, a house museum there. <coughs> uh, so shout out to that. If you're ever in Celestia, maybe hit it up. I don't know, I don't know how much you're going to like this episode, so we'll see. Uh, and he was in and out of school due to various illnesses, so he was a pretty sick kid. But it kind of seems to be a thing that I've found a lot with, like, really smart guys and, like, people that con- contribute a lot to science, and, like, they're always, like, sick people. Like, growing up, they have some something they have to overcome or whatever, and then they want to do science. Hi, Gina. Um, he didn't have a whole lot in the way of money, and that is kind of why he joined the clergy, because it helped him on his path of education. And in his, Gina, what do you want? She wants a shout out. Quick yeah. shout out to Gina. Yeah, big shout out to Gina. This is Gina Bean Studios after all, so shout out to Gina. All right. I can't pick you up right now. We're in the middle. Okay. Uh, so, easy. Sorry. Uh, so, joining the clergy helped him on his path of education. And as he put it, it, it spared him the perpetual anxiety about a means of livelihood. So basically just had a steady job and steady steady pay, you know, essentially. Uh, During this time, he worked as a substitute teacher uh, around the Abbey and he attempted to gain a certification, but failed his final test to become an actual teacher, uh, sending him back to the Abbey just to be be a scientist, clergyman guy and and substitute teacher. He finished his education at the University of Vienna in 1853 and began working as a physics teacher again at the Abbey. Uh, Not substitute anymore, but he was never like a full-time teacher. He was more like a long-term sub. Uh, He did this until 1868 when he became the abbot and he uh, finally just kind of gave up on scientific work. Um, He didn't really have time for it anymore. He just had a lot more going on. He was running an Abbey, which I don't really know how much work that is, but presumably it's a lot. I mean, it's it's a it's a place that has a bunch of guys working and living in it, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then he died in 1884 after a bitter, a bitter dispute with the civil government over taxation uh, that resulted in the succeeding abbot burning all of the papers in his collection, which is definitely a shame, and uh, maybe why he didn't really gain recognition until after his death, because he just kind of was working in, in silence and all of his stuff got burned, like, 
right after he died so there's really no record for anyone to think about so his work didn't really get recognized for a decent amount of time afterwards um, but yeah uh, we can talk about his work I mean as for what he did his work that would bestow him the title of the father of modern genetics was done on pea plants as Elizabeth already mentioned earlier accidentally kind of it's okay um, he had already been working with professors like Frederick Franz and Johann Karl Nestler who we don't really have time for talking about but you can look up them if you want uh, and they were studying hereditary traits in sheep so he just kind of like took all that expertise and knowledge and he put it somewhere else um, into pea plants and he was looking for seven different traits in the plant and he followed some generational lines to see the pers persistence of the traits uh, after crossbreeding them multiple times and whatever and he kind of just discovered probably the biggest thing he discovered was the existence of uh, dominant and recessive genes um, and just the the like the, the mechanics kind of of how it works a little bit um, so yeah I'm gonna let Elizabeth roll on that and uh so i didn't really write that much about his experiments because i thought you were i have um, some i mean I, yeah. but basically he did experiments to determine the dominant and recessive genes amongst plant features such as pea color so like green being dominant versus yellow flower color white being more popular than purple and um the pea pod shape smooth or bumpy i don't remember which way that went but uh I feel like I see a lot of bumpy pea pods. Mm -hmm. They look pretty bumpy. Mm -hmm. um, his research was later cemented by several scientists in the 1900s. Um, that's all I really had to say about Mendel's experiments. He apparently cultivated an estimated 28,000 plants. <laughs> so I'd say he knows peas better than anyone else. That is a fair assumption. Yeah. Okay, well, um, okay, I'm just going to go one more... I guess five more things on Mendel. So Wikipedia whipped up a handy little list for me already. It's already there. Uh, of the major discoveries that Mendel made in his big landmark work, whatever. Um, I don't know you call it in the science world, but uh, yeah. So here are the five. Number one, characters are unitary. That is, they are discrete, uh, aka purple versus white, tall versus dwarf. Uh, genetic characteristics have alternate forms, so each inherited from one or two parents. Today, we call these alleles. 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 Whatever. Okay, fine. One allele is dominant over the other. The phenotype, is that right? Mm -hmm. Reflects the dominant allele. Gametes. 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 Gametes are created by random segregation. Heterozygotic. Zygotic. Zygotic. Either. Cool. Individuals produce gametes with an equal frequency of the two alleles. Different traits have independent assortment. In modern terms, genes are unlinked. So there you go. That's, according to Wikipedia, the five big things. That's the big, the big, the big. one, two, three, four, five. Um, and all these things have held true to uh, modern science, so really just appreciate the work that Mendel has done for us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he paved the way for, I mean, a lot of the stuff we we're doing today. And it's amazing, honestly, that it still holds up because, I mean, with science, it's stuff changes all the time. And it's not like any disrespect to the past. It's just things change. So. Shout out. Shout out to Mendel. My boy Gregor. 
which is also his clerical name. That's not even his, his real name. But I, I forgot to write down his real name. So. Or did I write his real name? No. Gregor Mendel. I just wrote Gregor. But that's his, that he chose. That, that's the name he took when he joined the clergy. Ah. Yeah. His real name is something different. So, um. <laughs> I guess, like, since Mendel discovered genetics, it wasn't known that DNA was what was responsible for the observations that he was making. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when things went from genetic research on the heredity level mm-hmm. and moved over to DNA research. Right. And that's kind of like where your your discipline gets more involved with it. Because mm-hmm. before it's more of a biology kind of thing. And then once, once we get into the DNA level, it's more of a chemistry idea. Oh, I always forget to mention people credentials. Uh, so Elizabeth is uh, she's a, a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh for uh, chemistry, and uh, she graduated from from college with a degree in, in chemistry, biochemistry. biochemistry. And sorry, I didn't I didn't I didn't want to get it wrong. You always tell me you're just a chemistry person, now, so it's like I don't you know. Um, and yeah she she did an smp on chemistry so that she has as much qualifications to do this as adam and i consider her an expert so a brief a brief little segue there but you know it is what it is in case anyone in the scientific community hears this i am not an expert she's an expert on the flimoglog.com podcast so that's it with an asterisk so you want me to go through a quick history on dna research uh and then build up to watson yeah yeah, I mean, you pretty much got what I was going to say with this little paragraph here. I mean, uh, you know, so-called Mendelian genetics became the primary lens through which research was done. Uh, it's just kind of the, because people just realized um, his work wasn't discovered again until the turn of the century. Actually, like pretty much exactly the turn of the century, like 1900-1901, uh, by three different scientists, Carl Korins, Eric von Schirchmack, and Hugo de Vries. Um, I don't really have a lot on them either, so if you want to look them up, go ahead and look them up. I might even link them in the in the show notes. So who knows, man? I'm feeling frisky. Uh, we'll get we'll get that there. Um, so if you want to look them up, you can do it yourself. <clears throat> but that's pretty much all I got um, up until Watson and Crick. So it's yeah, you can do you can do you. So before the major controversies that people may have heard of today. I'm going to start in 18, the 1860s. Frederick, I want to say Mescher, Mescher um, focused on the identification of proteins. Proteins mm-hmm. were discovered much earlier on. They're so much easier to work with. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, work with proteins had been pretty cemented by the time people started researching DNA. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but a lot of people think that proteins are just what's available in like when you eat a chicken or, or a steak. steak. Um, but it's actually, like I said, it is a biomolecule that's responsible for most of your bodily functions. Um, Fair enough. So he was analyzing a sample from cell nucleus extracts. And as you know, DNA is stored in the nucleus of the cell. Um, he discovered a molecule containing phosphorus Mm -hmm. and sugars had been studied, fats had been studied, and proteins had been studied, and we knew that there was no phosphorus in there. And back mm-hmm. then, an elemental analysis was really like the most cutting edge thing you could do, right. so this was a huge deal. Right. Um, let's see, in 1869, he discovered DNA and gave it the name nucleine. 
1889, his student uh, coined the term nucleic acid, which is still the terminology that we use today. That's the one. I know that one. In 1878, Albrecht, these names are rough. Albrecht Kossel isolated DNA, including the five primary bases, so technically isolated DNA and RNA, yeah, and true. he found A, C, G, T, and U. Um, and then there was a significant stall in the research of DNA until then. And the reason was is because, like I said, there's three meters of DNA in your body, but it's in, so difficult to isolate. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really master isolation until the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, so in 1919, Phoebus Levine identified the individual components of DNA, which finally explained the presence of phosphorus. So DNA is made up of a sugar. Um, this phosphate group, which he identified, and then the nucleic acid that we mentioned, so ATG or C. Mm -hmm. um, and then around the same time, the polymer nature, so it being a long strand of these for this code, right. was discovered. Hmm. Um, Another stall happened, and in 1937, it was discovered that DNA formed a regular structure, meaning that it was structurally consistent throughout, like the gaps between the, what they didn't know at the time was a helix were the same. Mm -hmm. They were taking these microscopic measurements, but they didn't know what they mean. They just knew it was uniform. Right. Um, in 1928, the phenomenon, oh, this is, so this is an interesting side journey. Oh, nice. I love yeah. it. Great. <clears throat> so in 1928, the phenomenon of transformation was discovered. Mm. And this is the ability of bacteria to pick up genetic material from other bacteria. Mm. So this was a really cool experiment that's super famous. It's called the Avery McLeod McCarty experiment. Okay. And so what they did was they had a rough strain um, and a, which is a viral virulent strain of bacteria mm -hmm. and a smooth harmless strain mm -hmm. so think about it like the spongebob meme where he's like smooth you know? right yeah he's a good boy okay yeah um and then the one where he's at the the goofy or the at goofy goobers yeah where he's like trashed and like hungover yeah that's the that's the virulent strain okay it's rough cool so when the rough strain was injected into mice they they died but when the smooth strain was injected in the mice they lived because it wasn't virulent. Mm -hmm. um, but then when you killed the virulent ones, they the mouse still lived. Okay. So then they mixed the virulent ones that had been killed with ones that were alive, and they realized that the DNA was being taken up by these bacteria and mm -hmm. that they were able to infect the mouse again. Oh. Isn't that insane? That's crazy. So we actually exploit that today. Um, this is not an animal testing thing. Bacterias are very, very simple organisms. Yeah. Um, and that we figured out that you could take any DNA strand that you want and put it in a bacteria and have it pump out that protein like a little factory. Really? Yeah. So that's like a huge part of scientific research. Sci huh. Like people in genetics probably do that like minimum once a week. And when <laughs> I say that, I mean like probably more like minimum five. Wow. Um, Crazy. Never yeah. done that in my life. I can't say the same. Yeah, I'm sure not. Yeah. So, in 1950, this is a major observation. Mm -hmm. um, this is 
called Chargaff's rule, and it was noted that A always goes with T, like I said, because mm-hmm. A always existed in equivalent ma- amounts as T, mm-hmm. while G and C were always in equivalent amounts. So I don't mean like G and A were the same. I mean like that they, the two pairs always existed in the same right. quantities. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they have to be together if they're always... Yeah. Think, yeah. So that really kind of started the idea that it was double-stranded, but people didn't really know what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1952, DNA's role in heredity was confirmed in the Hershey-Chase experiment, which shows that DNA is the material, genetic material of the T2 phage, which is a virus for bacteria. Fun fact, bacteria mm-hmm. have viruses. Called phages. Yep. Or bacteriophages. This work was noted, uh, or was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1969. So this was another really cool experiment. They use radio-labeled isotopes, so quick explanation. Atoms can have varying numbers of neutrons in their nucleus, so they have protons, electrons, neutrons. Mm-hmm. Um, when they have more than the standard amount of neutrons, which is the number that you would see on the periodic table, right. then it's a heavy isotope. Right. So... All of the proteins in the bacteriophage were labeled with heavy sulfur because sulfur doesn't exist in DNA. Mm -hmm. And all of the phosphorus was labeled with P35. Um, So heavy phosphorus. Mm -hmm. When the bacteriophage infected the virus, no sulfur isotopes were found, but heavy phosphorus was found showing that DNA was the carrier of genetic information. Mm. So again, very very clear why that got a Nobel Prize. so crazy how how many steps it took and like how little it like kind of seems like but it's like so major you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you do like one experiment and it just blows everything wide open and it's like oh my god like this is all everything's different than we thought it was like but it's like you have to think like these people's entire work was like waiting for that one experiment when they just blew the roof off of everything right um, science is a very slow, stressful process with a lot of trial mm-hmm. and error. Right. And so these miracle experiments truly deserve the awards that they receive. And we're going to get into some awards uh, in a little bit. Uh, and some, yeah. Well, that's really all I have to say up until... Until the boys? Watson Crick. Okay. So I can do an intro on them if you want, or um, do you want to keep talking about them? I kind of have my intro on them, so I like I have like the history and the background on them, but I don't know what yours is. So I have the controversy of the double helix discovery. Cool. So we're gonna, I'll get, I'll talk to you. I'll, we'll talk, we'll ch- we'll tap back into Elizabeth, but I'm gonna get, I'm gonna cover their their early history together a little bit. So, okay, so. Um, my research personally skipped ahead a lot, like I said earlier. Not gonna lie, uh, but like I said, it got kind of hard for me to follow. So it is what it is. Um, I don't really know much about the sciencey side of Watson and Crick, which is why we have Elizabeth here, of course. Um, but I am going to talk about their history and talk about a little bit of the sexism and racism uh, that has uh, occurred uh, with, in particular, James Watson. Uh, just a total like just a bad dude just like good 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 mind really bad guy you like well yeah we'll get into it uh so the two began working together watson and crick uh james watson and uh is it francis francis crick that's it james watson and francis crick uh they began working together in 1951 on their dna model at the university of cambridge with crick being a student of watson um 
though ultimately they would be co-authoring their findings. Uh, a few months after they started their work together, an X-ray image was taken in the lab of another scientist by another scientist. Um, in the lab of Rosalind Franklin. I don't remember. He's just a student of Rosalind Franklin. I don't remember what his name is. Um, But the image could be used to identify the space group of the DNA crystals and the strands of DNA, and that the strands of DNA are parallel. Um, Where prior to this, the model had been theorized that, or a couple models have been theorized, but the the one that had been like getting a lot of traction was that there were three intertwined uh, chains uh, with stuff at the base and like stuff at the top and like it didn't really look like what we think it looks like now yeah they also had the like the atgc basis on the outside of the strand it should have been on the inside Mm -hmm. Um, but this image that was taken uh, in the lab of rosalind franklin eventually found its way to watson and crick by way of maurice wilkins um, and we'll get into him a little bit too and this image kind of gave them the last piece of the puzzle um it explained that the backbone of the DNA had to be on the outside, like you just said, and all of the bases had to be on the inside. And it kind of gave them what they needed in order to create their model of DNA. Um, so, let's see, they, they published their journal, or their, their findings in the journal Nature, uh, along with supporting evidence from Franklin and her partner Gosling. And then a, an, another article from Maurice Wilkins, um, who, like I said, is the guy that got the picture to them, and then two other colleagues of his who didn't get names in the Wikipedia article for some reason. Don't know why, so screw those guys. Uh, <clears throat> but in 1962, after the death of Rosalind Franklin, uh, the three men that, I, that have names, uh, Watson, Crick, and Wilkins, went on to receive the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for the discovery of DNA. Um, and unfortunately, the, the Nobel Prize cannot be awarded posthumously, um, so Franklin did not get the award. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that kind of sucks. Uh, but in addition to it, James Watson, uh, just being the total asshole that he is, uh, he he wrote a book about his life, obviously, and uh, he wrote a lot of just shitty stuff about Rosalind Franklin and it like throughout. And he kept on referring to her as Rosie, which she would, like, she literally, like, was vehemently against in life. Uh, and she stated multiple times that she would never let anyone else call her. And he was like, yeah, we all called her Rosie. I was like, bro, like, that's not true. But um, don't worry. He's still alive, right? He's still alive. And he's still being an asshole. So don't worry. Uh, I have an article that I, I might get into if we have time. But I got, like, five-ish minutes. So, like, you can do your controversy bit and then we'll see if I have time Um, and then I'll talk about him being an asshole today with some articles so some of the stuff in this story are a little redundant but for the sake of the story I'm gonna say it yeah sure sorry I stomped over here a little bit I just realized I only had like three paragraphs and I was like yeah might as well say it all So, in 1953, James Watson and Francis Crick proposed the now-accepted double helical structure of DNA using a single photo called Photo 51, which was taken by Rosalind Franklin and Raymond Gosling. Oh, we found his name. Oh, yeah. I I guess I did say her partner, Raymond Gosling, yeah. Um, In the year before. Nice. Yay. Shout out to the boy. So, Watson and Crick's first attempt at determining the DNA structure consisted of that inside-out three-stranded helix that was a mess. Um, 
This work had immediately been dismissed by Franklin at a glance, and higher-ups <laughs> at Cambridge told them to stop working on DNA. <laughs> Um, in 1953, an American competitor, Linus Pauling, became interested in cracking DNA structure, which, mm-hmm. of course, as a prestigious university, Cambridge did not want to be swooped. So they told them to crack on with their DNA research. Nice. Good Love Island ref. Sorry, Love I didn't it. mean to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. So Watson was shown the famous Photo 51, which was taken by Raymond Gosling and published by Franklin. And he knew immediately that this was what was going to be the photo that cracks the case wide open. Mm -hmm. Um, Using numerical data from that x-ray crystal, that's how you take these pictures. That's what they're talking about. Um, Which was, this was unbeknownst to Franklin that they were using her data. Right. Um, That's, yeah, I forgot to mention that. But I figured you would. (laughs) Crick was able to calculate the distance between nucleotides and therefore propose a double helical structure. This... Numerical data was obtained from an informal report to Cambridge University and is considered dishonestly acquired. Ironically, Watson would have had this data two years earlier if he had paid attention to a presentation that he attended by Franklin. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, Franklin said that he instead made comments about her dress and was pretending to nod off. Incredible. Um, what a guy. So... Basically, the reason for this scoop was that Franklin didn't have the ability to comprehend the significance of her numbers. Mm -hmm. Like, unfortunately, Crick is just... And Watson were both brilliant men. Right. And so they were able to crack it and, like... Like, they they were one step away from figuring it out, and she was, like... Several. Yeah, and so it was... They they needed one last piece, and she had it. It It's like when, when you're playing McDonald's Monopoly, man. Yeah, I mean, Watson had years of experience, years of expertise, mm-hmm. as well as, like, what people considered to be an obsession right. with DNA. Like, right, he'd been built, working on it forever, right. It was an obsession. Yeah. And unfortunately, f- since her work was never recognized as being important, she stopped working on DNA, Franklin. So, yeah. um, just another thing that Crick did, in 1957, he established the central dogma that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Right. And he also worked on the Human Genome Project. I know I said I was going to get into notes on the Human Genome Project. I just didn't really. But you can look it up if you want. It's pretty self-explanatory. They sequenced the whole human genome, figured out... Well, they don't know what every protein does, but they at least, like, identified the sequences of every protein. Right. Uh, So that was neat. Okay, cool. Uh, Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you for that. Um, Okay, yeah, like I said, I have some stuff about Watson being shitty in the modern day, but that's basically it that we have for the academic side of this whole thing. Uh, So here we go. Let me just read some... I I really don't even know if I'm going to get into the articles so much as I'm just going to read some some headlines. So this is from smithsonian.com. DNA pioneer James Watson loses honorary titles over racist comments. Oh, that was recent, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah, January 15th. Yep. The renowned scientist has a long history of controversial commentary on not only race, but issues spanning gender, religion, and sexuality. So he's just an all-around shitbag. Don't worry. Um, he, a lot of his comments are about, like, African people not being smart. Uh, let's see. Inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. Shout out. Um... Wait, I can't keep saying shout out to everything. Not shout out. Fuck you, dude. Um, let's see. Uh, 
As if his thinking on the relationship between race and intelligence had shifted, this was like, what? This was a recent one, so this is 10 years after that? He said, not really. Or no, 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 not at all. Oh, shout out to that. I like that one. He doubled down. Uh, yeah, right, I'm gonna go over another article here. <coughs> Title Sexism in Science. Oh, wait, it's from The Guardian. Shout out. Uh, sexism is in science. Sexism in science. Did Watson and Crick really steal Rosalind Franklin's data? I don't even know. Yes. I think we get down to yes. Because um, they stole a personal communication between her and the university. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's a good. Let's save that. Um. Okay. Let me just look up James Watson because I remember there was just a ton of them. I don't know which. Chrome like window I have them all open in so uh, a lot of them are just about him losing all of his honors and stuff a remarkably long history of sexist racist public comments from Vox so shout out to Vox and let's see what they got to say because this one might be full of quotes from all I know not really we got that Africa comment again. Big shout out to that one. Uh, oh my god. Alright, well, regardless. If you're listening to this, Mr. Watson, Dr. Watson, Sir Watson, I really don't know. You suck. And I don't know why you'd be listening to this. So, yeah. Um, that's pretty much all I got. Is that all you got? Um, I just wanted to address CRISPR Cas9. Oh yeah. All right, we'll get get to it because we got uh, not much time left. But that's great because I didn't write that much because CRISPR is incredibly complicated. But I really just want to say it's been a buzzword lately. Um, it's not just like a couple labs doing this. CRISPR mm-hmm. is fairly now accessible. If I wanted to do CRISPR in my research in grad school, I could just ask and order the stuff online. Could I do CRISPR in my kitchen? Okay. Is that a yes? No. Oh. I mean, I guess you could, because it's... I think it's done at room temperature. Oh, sweet. And I don't think you need a fume hood. There you go. Um, so, yes. So, basically, the chemistry behind it is very sound in that DNA is high fidelity when it comes to matching with its complementary strand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the potential... Basically, CRISPR uses a guide strand of RNA to gene edit, and that's about 20, 25 nucleotides long. And so you have to think about how, how much DNA we have, 3 billion base pairs, what are the odds that that 20, that sequence of 20 is somewhere else in your DNA? Surprisingly high. So the potential for off-targeting there is, which is matching with the wrong sequence, is mm-hmm. too high for use in humans, at least right now. There have been certain types of, uh, certain types of CRISPR molecules and at, like changes that have been made to make them more accurate, but we're still not there yet. Mm. Another thing to consider is that it would only edit a single cell at a time, so it wouldn't be suitable for use in adults, which would... Right, it would take way too long to do anything significant. Which, yeah, leads us into the whole, should we be editing our 
our fetuses. See, that I think that's the problem a lot of people have with genetics is it gets into murky territory mm-hmm. like pretty quick. But it's like the actual idea of it and the study of it is pretty above board. Like, you know, it's, it's all good. So. But yeah. um, another important thing to know. Okay, here we go. Yeah, is that CRISPR has actually been done in a human trial. Oh, really? Well, illegally in China, but oh, word. <laughs> a, a variant of CRISPR. So this is not CRISPR. Sorry, gene editing has been done. Okay. Um, using a, one of a virus that is a human adenovirus that is the only thing that we've really found that can cross the blood-brain barrier, mm-hmm. and it only targets neurons. And the thing that's special about neuron proteins is that you're born with the ones that you're stuck with forever. Um, so when they edit those, you don't have to worry about like a skin cell regenerating or something. Mm-hmm, right. It's just the neurons. And so but what they, does that change about you? They used it to treat, um, I think spinal muscular dystrophy. Really? Or some like something along the lines of a disease that affects your bones and spine. That's wild. Um, and they've had some pretty significant results, but it has to be done in infants because if you've been exposed to that virus, you'll have a fever that would kill you. Mm. So it's been working. <laughs> I really do think that gene editing has a future, but it depends on where we stand morally as a society and okay. like being sure not to cross boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. Yeah, and I think it's, it's this discussion that needs to be had because it's coming eventually and it's something that... Oh, it's coming. Yeah, like regardless of whether or not you believe in it or want it or whatever, like it, it's one of those things about prohibition where it's it's better to just have it be discussed in the open rather than force it into the the black the blackness. Um, I guess so. Yeah, we didn't. <laughs> and it's not what we're really here about, but it is what it is. Um, on that note, we're gonna wrap this one up. Uh, this has been episode number six of the Flumaglockin.com pa- podcast. Podcast, and it's been uh, it's been a blast. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this, Elizabeth. I know you didn't. It, it wasn't as bad as you thought, right? I yeah. We'll talk later. <laughs> cool. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. So. Thanks for listening. Uh, Good night. Good morning. Good afternoon. See you guys whenever, I guess, two weeks from now. You don't see me, but listen to me. Yeah. Sorry I picked genetics, guys. We were going to do microscopes, but that's coming later, so don't worry. It might Uh, be. It's coming. Well, talk to you later. See ya. See ya.